You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome listeners to The Renegade Economist. This week we're at Curtin University's Sustainability Policy Centre with Professor Peter Newman, who uh, many of you will know through his innovative work in transportation finance. Now, Peter, you're, you were one of the first to really pick up on uh, the land value capture story and we've seen a lot of discussion in, in the press about it and more momentum than I'd expected from Malcolm Turnbull. How does it sit with you where we are here in late 2016? Well, I think Malcolm and I share an interest in cities and enjoy what happens when good rail systems work because they create cities that are really active and interesting and more sustainable because there's so few cars there. And uh, we, we have shared an interest in what makes that happen. So we discovered that uh, the key to it was how to integrate transport and land use was finance. That you had to unlock the ability to finance a railway with land development and by doing that you would get the kind of integration that us planners have been imploring governments to do and never being able to do because the transport people would come in and just go from A to B and say, oh, don't worry about this land stuff, it's irrelevant. Or the planners would say, oh, don't worry about the transport, just build something here. And it it, it was never integrated, but it's all about finance. So we developed what we called the entrepreneur rail model, which was to enable this integration. And it's a process that... uh, we worked out in the end was what they do in Japan, they do in Hong Kong, they are starting to do in a number of American cities, uh, the odd project in Europe, uh, and it was in fact the way in which trams and trains were first built. They were private exercises. And I've just come from um, uh, Florida where the Brightline uh, Railway is being built by a developer who used a hedge fund to finance the project, uh, and it runs between uh, Miami, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, uh, and Orlando, which these cities were actually built by railway companies in 120 years ago. And one of those companies still exists, so they're just doing it again. And uh, I think that history has turned because our cities were built around trams and trains, and then slowly cars took over and with the odd bus. So trams and trains had to become part of the welfare system. In other words, governments ran them and tended to run them down because they didn't, you know, they weren't very entrepreneurial. In a few cities, they, they did well. But in more recent times, cars have filled the cities so much that everything slowed down and trams and trains are now faster again. So there's a market. Well, how do you make that market happen? You do it with land. So we're tapping into something that's new but very old, like most good things. 
Yeah, well, as history turns, the question is, will we learn from that era of private development when the robber barons in America were very forceful in their negotiations in terms of uh, which way will the train line head? Will it go past uh, your town or the southerners uh, over there are offering us actually 10,000 acres of land right where we're going to build this train station? So I think we might go that way. So what sort of Mm. um, uh, government oversight is involved in this process with the Brightline project? Well, they... They had the route already because they owned a freight line that was left over from the old system. So they knew exactly where it was going to go and they just had to negotiate with the local governments and county governments in order to get land development opportunities around the stations. And they worked that out very carefully with them. So none of those governments had to provide money, but they did have to provide their resources in terms of land assembly, uh, integration into the rest of the transport system, all of those common good outcomes had to be built in. And uh, so you can now see that there is total support of the government entities with the private sector and with the community because they're getting their railway. They're getting a fast railway which will outstrip the awful traffic that goes along that area. So there is a good outcome there. um, And... At every step, government had to be involved and I am hopeful that this process can head down that track. The problem is if either of them get total control. So if the robber baron comes in and says, oh no, we're going that way and I don't care what you say, you either get this or you don't, then you'll you'll lose out on the common good things. So the um, Clara, is it Clara, the... Uh, the high-speed rail project, which is going from uh, Sydney to Melbourne. Now, that that's a classic example of a Robert Barron approach because essentially it goes from the edge of the city, as in an airport area, it goes through the countryside and does not stop in any of the country towns. It creates its own country towns, which are apparently going to pay for the building of the and running of the railway. Now... Those country towns that are all already out there, they will really lose out. And it doesn't go into the city centre. It stays on the fringe. So it's essentially cheap and nasty and not terribly common good in its outcomes. You will get something that might compete with a uh, an airline, but uh, gosh, can't we do better than that? I, I would hope so. And there are other bids that are around, which I think will do high-speed rail much better uh, and will also have this model of using land development as its base. So uh, it is all about the process. And in my view, the um, processes that are being set up in each of the states and through the Commonwealth uh, system look as though they will handle a lot of these questions. But that's that's my interest to make sure they do. Well, the big question that comes to mind as I hear uh, these development rights being handed over to uh, the, these entrepreneurial rail uh, types is uh, what is a reasonable return on investment? Now, were, were any percentages uh, uh, thrown around the table on, on that level of discussion? Well, I've not been part of those kind of discussions. When it gets down to commercial discussions... Uh, 
that is something that will go on with um, key peoples in Treasury and Finance uh, within government. And let me just take a step back and say the way I th would hope that the processes will work. You do not get transport departments to run this project, this kind of project. They will only go from A to B as quickly as they can and will only look for government money. They just can't handle this private stuff because it comes with all this land development stuff and they don't like it. Um, so I've seen that happen. The Gold Coast Light Rail was a classic example. It was supposed to be done with land and in the end they pulled out and got government money. And didn't they also have a, a, a per title charge? It was a flat charge of $111, I think, yep. on commercial rather than being location-based, yeah, not location that land based. value. It went right across the whole Gold Coast Council. Every ratepayer had to pay. And it's still being paid. Now, that was reasonably supportive because they thought it would be the start of a whole lot more. And it is, it will continue. And it is one way to do it. Except most governments don't have money anymore mm. for this kind of thing. Uh, and even if they did, I would think it's better to involve the private sector because they do the land development anyway. So why not integrate it? into the train because that's what we need. That's the way to make what, cities what, work. We've heard years and years of public-private partnerships and we've seen mega failures, uh, particularly in Sydney and Brisbane, regarding user-pay models to repay these these tunnels and freeways and so forth. Uh, on the other side, the transport bodies hold thousands of acres of, of property uh, in, in lieu of, of future development potentials. So um, your experience is that those people behind VicRail and, and these other groups uh, that, that uh, are involved in the, the Moonda station development and the selling of the land up there, that uh, they just, they're just after the big ticket sales. They're not there for using that, those, those lands for public goods? Yeah, well, it's, um, you can pick off little bits like that and, 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 you know, the people whose job is to run a transport department uh, don't necessarily have the expertise to handle that sort of thing. But my approach is to say you need to say where the uh, general direction of, uh, of need is. Where is there a public transport corridor that's lacking in a fast train service? And you call for expressions of interest that would generate the public-private partnership. But you do it in a way that's quite competitive and quite transparent. So they come up with their bids that show how they would build it, they would own it, they would operate it, and they would finance it through land development. And those land development opportunities have to be something that is part of the common good as well, in the sense they're creating centres where you need centres. And those centres are best decided on by the private sector because they're the ones who build anyway. And at the moment, they're scattering it around wherever they can find the right land. But if they do it in a way that's in a corridor, they will create a corridor of opportunity and a corridor of need for that service so it'll be well used. And if they can come up with something that the public can then see is going to be of benefit to everyone, and the government can provide all of the assistance they need. There will be bits of government land in there that could be part of the package. They 
would do all the land assembly that will bring it together and enable it to be, uh, uh, you know, create the centre that you need around the station. And you, you can say, we want this to be a solar-based system because that's now cheap enough. So you build it in and you have electric service that is recharged stations and, and, and so you've, you're achieving zero carbon goals. You build in affordable housing into, into each of the sites. You build in walkable design around the stations. All of these things require government to do it, but you don't beat up the private sector and say you must do this. You work with them in a way that comes up with the best opportunities and the, the best one will win. Now, the, the, the bidding process is, is something we're learning about. It's, it's, a, it's a journey that Australia is starting. How do you involve land in a way that can constructively create better economies? I mean, you know all about land and, and the value of it. And, and if you do it that way, you're likely to get better outcomes. Well, I, I can see that, that uh, we're starting to see as a, uh, an economy that, that this is the way to go. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're discussing with Professor Peter Newman at Curtin University uh, the incredible impetus behind land value capture and some of the policy intricacies there. And uh, Peter, Malcolm Turnbull uh, has stepped up by announcing the formation of the Urban Finance Unit in last year's budget. Now, uh, for me, that was quite a, a good signal to the market that they were taking this seriously of moving towards land value capture. How do you see the urban finance unit playing out in the world of, uh, of meeting this uh, merger between state and local government and uh, the developers themselves? Well, I think the key thing that is needed from the federal government is not large dollops of money, but small dollops of money that can assist the process. So in order to get the right bidding process so we can ensure common good outcomes, popular outcomes are achieved, you need to help finance those bids because they can be very expensive. You can imagine taking a whole uh, corridor out to Badgerish Creek or out to Parramatta or through Brisbane or from Curtin University through to Stirling, which is our project we're working on. These things are not dreamed up by transport planners. They're dreamed up by consortiums of specialist experts and working with government at all levels. So if they could fund the bidding process to enable the best kind of outcomes and therefore to, in, in, to provide us with a model for how best to do that in future, then the private sector and the local governments and the state agencies who at the moment don't really know what to do, uh, they're all going to learn very quickly. And this is what I saw happening with the Brightline project in Florida. It's a demonstration. And the company that's now doing that said they want to do it in 100 other US cities because they know it works. And, and you know, they'll get, they'll, they, there's plenty of um, superannuation money waiting for a project to invest in. But how can they be sure that this is okay? Well, that's the bidding process. And in the bidding process, the urban finance unit can clarify all of the process. And what they're calling them now are city deals. So city deals are the way in which you integrate infrastructure, land development, 
and finance and bring in private sector money. And there were various examples of that just starting. But mostly we haven't yet uh, unlocked those big urban rail projects that our cities desperately need. So that's a stage yet to come, but that's the that's where I think the federal government is heading and where state governments are now lining up to say, yeah, look at me, look at me, I can do this, and various proposals coming forward. Well, I'm still uh, wanting to see the detail on, on the rates of return uh, uh, these developers will, will have. And, you know, one of the things, uh, the big concern for me in the world of property development is how staged releases are drip-fed out to the market. And we've got some that are, you know, 100-plus hectare developments that are at stage 137, and they're only 30% of the way through. So what sort of checks and balances will be put in place to ensure that these, to ensure, uh, you know, the, the public are getting this new train line, but how are the, how is the, the transport fare system going to be structured? And then from that, how is the heavy lifting going to be done from, um, you know, ultimately the, the best system would be a form of land lease or land tax behind that. But then we have these other complexities coming through with land value capture on drawing these arbitrary boundaries around new train stations and mm. anyone within the two-kilometre radius pays something, but the rest get a free ride. I mean, all this social cohesion, the contract of developing this new form of financing needs to be really spelt out because it has happened you know, in the past a number of times and we can learn from these mistakes uh, back in the robber baron era and, and right through to the, the 50s. Yeah, um, when you look at uh, our cities now, the, the really uh, popular parts to live, are central city areas and along the, the railway lines, you know. Uh, now, robber barons built them, uh, the tram lines in Melbourne, whatever, and, and uh, in, in each of our cities. So that they, might have, they might have done pretty well in the process. Uh, and perhaps got exorbitant profits in some cases. Some of them didn't, of course, and went bust. But that's the way our cities have been built. Now, I I don't believe in just throwing up your hands and, and saying, let it happen, you know. There's no doubt about it. You've got to ask all of those questions that you asked. Uh, and you've got to insist on a set of guidelines like it will only have a fare that is the same as the rest of the system. It must integrate. It must be fully integrated in terms of timetabling and scheduling and and so on, so that it is quite much part of the system. But the um, the key thing is that that you can get uh, the whole thing paid for out of private sector funding if you're clever. And I, I personally don't like the words value capture anymore. We talk about value creation and instead of putting a developer levy in and, and drawing up an arbitrary boundary to take that from, I would leave it to the developers to say, how would you pay for that railway line uh, and show us where your developments would be needed to happen in order to pay for that? So we're not going to tax you. You're taxing yourself in order to build this. And uh, that, that's the approach I would take. And that's, that's a bit more historically correct, actually, as to how these systems worked before. Um, governments didn't put money in. They just helped in the planning of it. 
Well, there's many examples of government bonds being sold to the market at a lower interest rate than what the private sector can um, attain, already giving the, the public sector an advantage. And, you know, for example, the Melbourne City Loop was paid off some 15, 20 years in front of what was expected due to the fact that uh, the site value rating, the land value rating, escalated over time and as a percentage that was paid back and and they came up ahead of time so you know there's both sides value value creation i like the term it's good but i would fear that and you know one of the things that we're seeing and i must say peter i've seen you use this term and it's tax increment finance and from all of the value capture well, that's not. That's the distortion the property lobby have thrown in. And according to our American colleagues uh, who, who are also specialists in this field, they say that tax increment finance is really um, uh, claiming the added tax revenue that the improved density yeah. that the project allows, such as added sales taxes, added company taxes, yeah. and um, are, are portioning that revenue to the the overall infrastructure costs. So there's some there, there's issues with the definitions uh, as we move into this new frontier. But yeah, well, that's that. I, I understand how tax increment financing works, and I think it's very awkward in the Australian system. Um, I've moved on from that. I just think it's it's um, it, it it hasn't happened. Because those people who looked at it, and there's been plenty of consultants around pushing it, and, um, in the end the, the governments just can't bring themselves to do it. It's very it's complex. Too, too complex. Yeah. yeah. The Americans have been doing it for a while, but um, it started out in urban regeneration projects, just just uh, helping to to fund them. And uh, once you know governments could get uh, inner city areas starting to be improved. Uh, of course, the land values went up and paid, it paid for the initial capital uh, through the, the the rates that came in. So that that's really all it is, 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 is that kind of planning, which is sensible enough, but big projects like uh, we're planning, I, I, I just think uh, it's a lot cleaner if, if the, um, the private sector can actually come up with building the project themselves, which is why I, like the Brightline project in Florida. And, and mm. uh, you just make sure that you get the common good outcomes at the same time. Mm. Well, let's hope those contracts are watertight. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, talking about um, you know uh, public transport financing, Perth here has arguably the best system in the country. And since I think the 70s, you've had um, something called the Metropolitan Regional Improvement Tax, yep. which is, I think, 0.014% surcharge added on to the land tax bill, if I'm correct there. Yep. And uh, it seems on like... undeveloped land. It's only on undeveloped land. It's yep. not on all investment property, no. really. So that gets the big land banks on the edge of town and yep. so forth. Okay, right. Well, thank you. And what else can you tell us about that that process? Because uh, yeah, you know the first rollout set up in 1955, right? As part of the setting up of the Stevenson Hepburn plan. So Stevenson was a, a planner from Liverpool, who who was Professor Stevenson, Gordon Stevenson was uh, seen to be the best planner in the world, and he came out and planned Perth, and then stayed on to uh, to help implement it, and. It's a uh, 
we're a highly planned city as a result because um, not only is everything in a statutory process uh, that's governed by a metropolitan-wide council, uh, state government agency, but it had the ability to raise money for the infrastructure from this fund. And that meant as we entered the car era, we had the best facilities for cars of any city in the world. <laughs> we rolled out the freeways in no trouble whatsoever. But we also used that fund to buy back land around the river and the beachfronts. So wherever there was public land that needed to be bought, uh, also green spaces, uh, wetlands and so on. Uh, so we are very well provided with on open space and unlike Sydney you can access the river anywhere so there is a cycleway that goes entirely around the river and um, that that was all brought back because in the early days of the colony like every other colony uh, property titles went right down to the river because that was where the, the highway was with boats but all of that's been brought back now that's the kind of thing you can do with a good planning scheme just a tiny bit of that money has been put into railways uh, as part of the Southern Railway. We say at least for some of these light rail projects we're planning that that, that money could be tapped. There is a substantial government amount that could be put in there. We've got another fund also which is from the Perth City Centre Parking Fund. It's a levy on parking that all businesses pay. Uh, it's up to $8 a space now. And uh, that's, a, you know, over $100 million been raised. And there was a limit to how many more car parks they could build. Uh, so they now put that into public transport. So the free cat bus in the city centre, that's paid for out of that. So that could also go in. This is also, that's in, in a way a land value tax um, because the, the land value is so high, uh, people want to get there they just doesn't matter how you get there but let's take it out of the parking so we've got opportunities from those taxes to put that into public transport hasn't been done in any significant way because this is a city built around the car and we're claiming back uh, a better future a more sustainable future and and one that's more economically sensible as well well, it's certainly sensible seeing that there are zero toll roads here and I hope that continues because it's just shocking to see Transfield owning some 90% of uh, Sydney's uh, tollways and some of the monopoly rights that come with that. So, um, yeah, fantastic, Peter. Well, uh, uh, what would be the leading uh, resource for people who wanted to really pick up on value capture? Where would you send them? Uh, well, our website, which is... Um sustainability.curtain.edu.au has a number of um, publications on it. The Entrepreneur Rail uh, Project publication is, is there and it summarises a lot of that literature and sets out how to do it. There are other publications there as well as some small films uh, that, that uh, help to dramatise the, the whole issue. But, uh, you know, you can Google... Land value capture, and you get a lot of stuff these days. It's, it's very active. It certainly is. And you'll see uh, Prosper Australia at number one on the ranking for that. Very good. <laughs> All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists.
much for listening to The Renegade Economist. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au in the next 24 hours. And always uh, keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter accounts at Earthsharing. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Keep an eye on your wallet. Keep an eye on the policy fraud. Let's change this economic system. <laughs>